Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. So, hey, welcome. My name is Josh, and uh, I am already off my notes and off track, 30 seconds in, so here we go. Uh, We're starting a new series this morning called Relationship Goals. Now, I need to ask a big question. It's a revealing question. It's a question that some of you may be uncomfortable with answering. But how many of you own a selfie stick? Raise your hand that you own a selfie stick. A couple in the back, so a couple, couple kind. Of, maybe you say it's a gag gift or it's ironic. I think croppers, don't you own a selfie? No, okay. Oh, she's judging me for even asking that. All right, so maybe you own a selfie stick. Now, here's the thing about selfies. Here's the thing about selfies. When we're going to take it, my phone's down there, we don't hold it like this, right? This is how we look at our phone most of the time. We're down here, we got like five chins, right? Our hairs, we're, we're down here. We hold it up top, right? When someone says, take a picture of me, they want that angle from up top, right? I posted a picture of myself looking very much triple, quadruple chinned uh, this morning on my Facebook page or the church page. And, and I thought to myself as I was sending that out, I was like, this is really uncomfortable. Like, this is really awkward for me to send this out. Now, I believe that black is slimming, but I know it's not that slimming, right? I, I, I believe that, that I want to have what's, what is the best kind of look about me, but I don't go to these great lengths to edit everything. But what we put out there what we put out there in terms of our image and how we look, it's intentional, right? We don't post a lot of candid shots of ourselves where we're not flattered. We kind we, of we make sure that there's, there's something out there that looks appealing. And even when we post something that's not flattering, even like I did this morning, we make it ironic. We kind of say, well, it's really just this nod to this sermon, and it's kind of like the start of my sermon at 8.30 instead of 10.30. It's kind of a way for me to kind of put that out there. And what I think with this series that gets down to this relationship goals is that we've got to be honest about who we are and our position with others. Now, this is not a marriage series. If you're married and you're here and you're hoping to get something from this, I think you will, and that's great. If you're single, I think there's something here for you. I think there's something here to be learned from as we look at the wisdom of Scripture and look, look at how Jesus modeled things. I think if you're single again, maybe you're remarried, maybe you're, you're, you're not even close to, to, to marrying age, and that's something so far off, you think, this is not for me. If you've got people in your life, if you, if you have family, if you have friends, I think this series has something for you. So I think that's an important thing for us to start with, because understand that this is not just for some specific group of people, this is for all of us. And the scripture that we're going to take that kind of serves as kind of the, the, the guiding, guiding light, the kind of the, the through line with all of this, comes from Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, we read kind of a, a summation of the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament. There are always, always these scholars that would come to Jesus and ask him these stumping questions. They're trying to trick him rhetorically. They're trying to trap him to say, well, he clearly doesn't respect the scriptures or respect God's law, so we can turn things around on him because he's gaining popularity. And they essentially ask, what's the most important law? What's the most important commandment? This, this kind of question that had been vexing and it was kind of a, a point of contention for, for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so what we read is Jesus', Jesus response in 22, 37 through 39. He says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So Jesus introduces a hierarchy and a priority. He says that first and foremost, how we love God, not just with our thoughts, not just with our emotions, not just with our actions, but with everything is of primary importance. That this is the main way that we are to go through life. The main way we go through life. Because commandments, in our mind, we think of laws, right? We think we can't break this law, we'll be on God's bad side. Commandments in the biblical sense are more about ways in which to live a full life. Ways in which to go forward into what is best. Sometimes those laws can feel oppressive, but I think if we are honest, we step back, we say, hey, this is really for our good, okay? And so what we see here is Jesus saying, what is best for you is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then he says, the second is like it, meaning that it's connected, meaning that this is part of it, meaning if we do the first, we'll also do the second. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in fact, he will go further than this. He will go further than this later in his ministry, and he will take what we might call the golden rule, and he will extend it. And he'll say, don't just love your neighbors, love others as yourselves, but show them the love that I showed you. So it goes even beyond just how would I like to be treated, but how did Jesus treat us? How did Jesus treat us? But this is huge. This is important. This is kind of the main thing that Jesus is talking about. And I think we have a huge problem executing these. We have a huge problem living into these. There's a recent study in this, this survey came out, and I kind of want to run through some of these statistics about how isolated we are, how, bro- how broken our relationships are. It found that nearly half, 46% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone. That's staggering, but also looking at a similar question 50 years ago, this number has doubled. say they sometimes or always feel like the relationships they have are not meaningful. They're surface, they're cursory, they're just on social media perhaps. 20% say they rarely or never feel close to people. Again, almost half, 47% say they rarely or never have meaningful in-person interactions with others. Maybe think about your week, think about the times you had interactions face-to-face with someone. And 13% say zero people know them well. Now, I would imagine you look at that list. I would imagine you would say that you're in one of these camps. I would imagine you would say in your life there have been times where you have found yourself in these spots. You, would, you could see that there have been seasons, there have been days, there have been weeks, there have been times where you were here, where you were isolated. So maybe those, those, those stats don't surprise you at all. <laughs> Or maybe you're a new parent and you're like, I'm tired of people, you know? I'm tired of this child crying and demanding everything of me, right? Maybe maybe you're like, I don't want to deal with that. I like some alone time. But what I'm hoping today is that we'll see that this kind of isolation has never been part of the plan. This kind of isolation is not what we're going for, right? This is not what God has for us. So maybe it's time that we kind of set some goals and we kind of understand what's, what's intended here because this doesn't just happen, right? This doesn't just happen on and on. So particularly in the context of a church, right? I think for us as a church, we can come together and we can say, we believe this. We believe this about Jesus. We believe this about the Bible. We believe it's important for us to come together. It's important for us to serve. Yes. But if we're not working together, if we're not connecting with one another, what's what's really our effectiveness? How are we really able to move forward? How are we really able to achieve the mission that we have? So we have to look at the beginning. 
And before we, we jump into this, I know we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit in the last series, and you can go listen to the podcast for that. But in this moment, what we see in kind of the poem and the account that begins the Bible, maybe you read that as literal, and that would be great. Maybe you read that as metaphorical, and I think we can deal with that. I think we can talk through that. But I think we have to see the truth therein. We have to see the truth therein, that regardless of what you think is actually going on, we see God's intent. We see kind of original design. We see what God is wanting to do. We see that this is how people are supposed to connect. So here in Genesis chapter 2, we read this, starting in verse 18. It said, the Lord, the Lord God said, it is not good for the, man, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We talked about how that helper word is really like a military savior. It's like reinforcements. It's God's power coming to work. Uh, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So right from the get-go, we have this idea that humans are not designed to be isolated. They're not designed to be alone. In this newly created world, God kind of steps back and says, this is good, but he discovers a flaw. He discovers that something isn't right. So there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, God says this. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. So here it is, biblical. When you're watching football this afternoon and you fall into a deep sleep and you're snoring on the couch, it's a biblical truth. This is what God wants, right? So there it is. But it continues on. It says, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he had taken, he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. So now in Hebrew, we, we might miss this, but notice it's kind of set to the side because in Hebrew, this rhymes. This is kind of a, a song rejoicing. When, when the Bible records something that has this lyrical kind of tenor to it or has this rhythm to it, it's almost as if they're saying, this is so important we put it to music. This is so important that it's passed on that we give it weight. We give it, we set it aside because we want this to be there. And so right there in that song of gratitude from Adam, the text said that God brought her to the man. It's here that we see something true throughout the entire Bible, that, that God is a good father, that God wants to give us good things, that God wants to take care of us. Sometimes it's not what we expect. Sometimes it's not what we would choose. But God is providing these things. And so the image we get is, is kind of God's dream. This is the way that humans are flourishing. This is God's best and just two verses later, we read that in this state, now ignore the, all the opportunities that I'm going to ignore in my head for the dumb jokes, but ignore that and see the intent here. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That in the ideal, shame doesn't exist. In the ideal, there is harmony, there is connection, there is intimacy, there is a relationship that we all crave for. So not only in our original intent is this something we should want, which is why I think we feel so isolated, it hurts so much, but in this moment there is intimacy, there is no shame. It's perfect. But things fall apart. It doesn't begin with an argument, it begins with a suggestion. 
We read of this other character, this, this kind of incredible mythical character, this, this talking snake, which is said to be kind of the enemy of the serpent. And it's kind of always kind of associated with, with the devil or Satan. And that's not explicitly what it says in the scriptures, but what we see is there's deception here and there's trickery. And this tree, I think, is kind of emblematic of, of kind of all of our times in which we say, I know what's best. I know what's best. I know what's best here. And if God would only listen to me, we would be fine. And so we see this temptation play out. In, in this story, we often think about it as an apple. But let's be honest, no one is really ever tempted by an apple, right? Maybe you, you cover it in caramel or chocolate, maybe. But, but no one's tempted by this. Like if you got chocolate cake, you got a nice T-bone, cooked rare, you know, a little baked potato, nice little beverage, maybe then it's tempting. But this is an apple. And so this apple here is this temptation, and it's a way for us to kind of disbelieve God's goodness, right? If we say we're going to take something that's been kind of set off to the side, so we're not supposed to take it, then therefore we are saying we know better than God. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, it says that the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did not say, but I'm sorry, but did God say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. But that's not exactly what God said. If you flip back and there to the previous chapter, it says, God says that, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there wasn't a prohibition, you can't touch the tree, you can't touch the fruit, you can't gaze on it, but God is saying if you eat it, you will die. So this is a slight alteration to God's remarks of taking, taking something that is true and just twisting it slightly and opening that up. And so the centerpiece of the story is this question of the knowledge of the good. Something that only God can know. Something only that God fully understands. We think we have a sense of justice, but our sense of justice is a is child's play compared to God's. And they disobey God. And they eat of the fruit. And notice what happens when this happens. When we step outside of what God wants for us in terms of our relationships or anything, things become corrupted and they begin to fall apart. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. See, this is my understanding of Scripture. This is my belief and this is what I've seen in my life. I think that humans, us, were created for relationship. Not just with one another. I think we are connected, we are designed to connect with the divine. We are connected and designed to connect with God, the creator. And when we say we know better than God, things start to fall apart. And notice that shame, fear, doesn't make its appearance until they say we know better. And they hide. And they hide. I think if we are all honest, we can say we are hiding for some relationships. We're hiding for some conversations. We're hiding for some actions. And it's because of shame. These first humans go from walking with God to hiding from God. And think about the ways that we hide. We hide behind our achievements, right? We hide behind our resume. We hide behind the things that we're good at. I know for me, the second one here is that we hide by, by way of humor. 
I, I catch myself doing this. I have a hard time having a serious conversation without interjecting humor. Usually it's self-deprecating. But isn't that me just saying, oh, I'm not. Isn't that either me saying I'm not good or fishing for a compliment? I think sometimes we use distance to hide ourselves. We just get out of there. We just get out of there. We just remove ourselves. This last one I think is big. It's big for me. We hide with religion. I can't be around you because we believe differently. I can't be around you because you live differently. I can't be around you because you're bad, other, something else. What do we see Jesus doing? Jesus hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. We see Jesus hanging out with everybody. He doesn't have these these lines. But what we do in religion is we create these, these clear lines. We say, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm safe. And some of that is good. Like, we need those safe places. We need people that we're safe with. But other times, I think we use it to hide. We use it to hide. And when that comes, when that hiding, because of shame, what we're doing is I think we are living outside of God's intent. We are Adam and Eve realizing shame and then realizing fear because God is close. So they cover themselves and they hide away. And one of the the most depressing lines of the Bible is God has that conversation with Adam after he comes out from hiding. God says, who told you you were naked? Not, 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 Not denying the reality you're naked, but who told you that? Because in his understanding, the way it was originally designed, this was supposed to be not just some like weird hippie nudist colony, right? This was supposed to be like pure intimacy, pure connection with God and one another. And so when I think about this idea of the ways in which we hide, the ways that we have to stop hiding, to stop covering up, comes from vulnerability. Now, as soon as I said vulnerability, some of you guys, I don't know. I've heard that in counseling. I've heard, read that in books. My wife's talked about being vulnerable, all that stuff. So stick with me. I think vulnerability is really an act of courage. One of, one of the better books I've read in the last few years was by uh, Brene Brown. And she's a psychologist. Maybe you've seen her TED Talk. She wrote this book called Daring Greatly. And it talks about the power of vulnerability. And she puts it this way. She defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. With that definition in mind, let's think about love. Waking every day and loving someone who may or may not love us back, whose safety we can't ensure, who may stay in our lives or may leave without a moment's notice, who may be loyal to the day they die or betray us tomorrow. That's vulnerability. That's also parenting. It's also marriage. It's also dating. That's your family. That's your friends. When we say we're going to be vulnerable, we are putting ourselves in a place of risk, right? That's why, that's why we don't do it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get my heart broken. I don't, want to get, I don't want to be left high and dry. But in God's economy or God's kind of intention, the way things are supposed to work, there is this sense of vulnerability where we are not hiding, but we are boldly going forward, knowing, knowing that there's risk here, knowing that there is a, an aspect of courage that is required. This isn't passive. This isn't letting people walk all over you. This is taking a stand. This is saying this is who I am and I'm going to pursue something better because not because I am somehow tapping into who I am, but because I say God says I deserve this because this is the gift God wants to give us. God doesn't say, hey, you've been good, you deserve this. God says, I've created you and you deserve better. And in our relationships, it requires vulnerability. And this is not just emotion. 
This is not just some feeling. This is a conscious decision. I want to think about the, the people that we're close with. Not, not just your Facebook friends. Not just the people you know in acquaintance. Not just even the coworkers, but people you're close with, people who know you well. People who know you well. And I want us to think about the ways in which we are able to connect with them. You know, I'm, I'm kind of one of those, in my gener- generational makeup, I'm an old millennial, right? And I'm very proud of that, by the way. Not really. But millennials get crapped on all the time, right? Millennials, they, they, they don't have any commitment, they don't have any work ethic, they're flighty, they complain all the time, right? But you know what I think millennials get right, and not just saying that because I am one? Is I think they have a great, a finely tuned BS meter. They see through the junk, right? And so when we were, we were kind of seeing what kind of church do we want to be, and we're asking these questions about moving forward, like who do we want to be? We want to make sure that as a church, and me personally, I want to make sure that me as a, as a leader, that I'm working from vulnerability. Because those millennials, and it's not just millennials, I think anybody that comes to church comes looking for inauthenticity. And millennials might be the best whistleblower about it to call something out, but they see things that are wrong when they're wrong. They see things that are off when they're off. And so we can't just say we're going to do this to pursue relationships, not just because that's going to get us a better marriage or a better family or better friendships, but because we say God wants this for us. We have to take steps in terms of vulnerability. So I got a challenge for you all. I got some challenge. I want you to pick one of these things and put it into practice because here's the deal. We can talk about this. We can intellectually say God wants something better for our relationships. We can say that how we treat and how we connect with others is connected to the greatest commandment of how we love God. And it's all kind of part of the whole thing in terms of how we follow Jesus. But until we put it into action, until we do the hard things, nothing changes. So I have some vulnerability challenges for you. The first one is this. Answer people honestly when they ask, how are you? I almost changed this one. I almost changed this one because I said, maybe, maybe that idea of answering people, honestly. Now, when you're in, like, the grocery store, and someone says, how are you? I was like, well, I'm thinking about filing bankruptcy. Like, don't do that. Don't do that, okay? But I'm thinking about the people who you are really close with, the people that you are really connected with, with you giving an honest answer, because I am guilty of this. Of the challenges, this is what I need the most help in, because I fall, per, fall, fall into the trap of, like, having this persona, right? I have fallen into the trap of having persona. People ask, how are you? How's church? How's the family? Fine. Good. That's actually really good. That's not always true. That is not always true. You know how hard it is to be a parent? You know how hard it is to, to try to, to lead people to follow Jesus? You know how hard it is to be married? No. You know how hard it is for Heidi to be married to me? You, you understand, sometimes things aren't okay. Now, you can't just blast this with everyone. And, and I would even caution you, maybe don't blast it on social media, but maybe you do. Maybe you lead in that way. Maybe for you, that's a comfortable kind of micro step in the direction of being able to share in person with somebody. Where when someone asks, how are you doing? You don't just give the one word answer. Parents, your kids come home from school. How was school? Fine. Wow, great conversation, right? Someone asks, how are you doing? I'm good. Maybe have a real conversation with somebody because we have to understand that for us to be able to move forward, we have to be honest. So I avoid honestly answering that question because church work is not always rewarding. 
my relationship with Jesus is not always clear and consistent. I don't pray for hours on end. I lose my temper. My marriage isn't perfect. Sometimes those things happen. Sometimes those challenging things happen. Sometimes things are really, really good. But the majority of the time, I spend my energy trying to get better, trying to deal, trying to overcome this. And I think one of the ways we can begin to do this is not by doing it on our own and just white-knuckling and working harder and harder by admitting something. Maybe first admitting it to God, saying things aren't good. Maybe admitting to someone that you are close with that is safe, that someone who loves you because they love you, and asking for help. So that's the first one, and the second one is like it. The second challenge is to admit a weakness. No one wants to do that. No one wants to admit a weakness. And usually it's like, it's kind of like a humble brag. You know what a humble brag is? I just work too hard. I care too much, you know? It's, it's that kind of junk, right? Usually, usually it's a humble brag. It's vulnerability challenge. I'm talking about being honest with someone. So if things aren't fine, maybe admit how you're a part of the problem. Like, you think back to your life, you think of all the different ways there have been issues, all the different ways there have been problems. Well, guess what the common denominator is? It's you. It's me. People aren't always out to get you. People aren't always against you. Maybe it's you, right? We can't fire yourself, but maybe you can change yourself. And for us, I think that sometimes in our prayer life, when we're talking to God, and it's so hard for us to have a moment of confession, to admit a sin, to admit how things are wrong. I think we need to realize that God already knows. We're talking to God saying, God, my life is a wreck. I am doing this wrong. I am in this addiction. I am, I am making these mistakes over and over again. I'm lying. I'm cheating, whatever. Understand, God knows. So why does God want us to, to vocalize this? Why does God want to ask for, tell us to, to ask about help and confess these things in prayer? Because I think God wants to help us. Because God is connecting us through a relationship. He's wanting an opportunity to come in and be a part of the process of moving forward to something better. The third challenge is this. Communicate value. Communicate value to someone. Give a compliment. Show up. Be there. You know what a great way to communicate value is? You know, I was thinking about this. You, you guys send cards to your parents. Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthdays, right? I, I, I kind of just like sign my name, maybe love Josh, right? Maybe write some notes in there. Maybe call someone out of the blue, maybe in a text message say, hey, I really value, or maybe do something. You know some great ways to communicate value? You know some great ways to communicate value? It has to do with our kids here. If you're not a parent, or if you are, think about this. You're tired. You need help. You're in a spot where you're not sure how to raise your kids. You want to point them to Jesus, but you can sure use a hand and get in there. One of the ways that we can communicate value is saying, I want to be a part of that with you. I want to help as well. I want to recognize that it's hard. I want to be part of this. We talk about opportunities to serve downstairs with moving kids. Understand, understand, we are not trying to get you to volunteer. We are not just trying to fill a roster. We're not just trying to fill a schedule. We are trying to communicate value to parents and say, what you're doing is incredibly important. A kid's development matters, and we want to be a part of that.
And so this isn't guilt. This isn't shame. This isn't you need to serve more. This is saying you are missing out on a full relationship. It's the same thing with when we serve in our community, whether it be Halloween or, or, or something at Ivy Knoll, the assisted living place, or, or you know, the day of service next spring, or whatever it is. It's not about the project. It's not about the project. It's about us communicating value because people matter, because life matters, because God says everyone matters, and so we have to communicate that. And so maybe you're sitting here saying, I don't want to give a compliment. I don't want to write a flowery card. Well, show up and do something if you don't want to talk. And here at this place, at this church, we got opportunities for you. Not guilt, not shame, but because this is how God intends it, that there's something better there. So there's the third challenge. The fourth is this. Let me turn the page. Speak up about a hurt. You're not being a snowflake. You're not being too sensitive. If you say, hey, that was rude. What you're doing is being an adult. How many conflicts, how many problems in your life started small and blew up? We got passive aggressive. We subtweeted them. We just said little things to somebody else. We gossiped about And things became a problem. Do you think gossip was part of God's original plan? Do you think passive aggressiveness was part of God's original plan? Do you think being that, being that way is part of us loving our neighbors as ourselves or loving our neighbors and other people as Jesus loved them? Of course not. Speak up. I say dumb things all the time, and I don't know unless someone tells me. And so when someone comes to you and say, hey, you said X and it hurt, be an adult and listen. Speak up about a hurt. Understand that that's going to make you vulnerable. That may invite them to react and say things that are hard, but put on your big girl or big boy pants and do it because this is what God intends. I'm not saying do this with everybody. I'm not saying do this with people who are toxic, who are unsafe, obviously. But I am saying that if we want to have good relationships, we got to start. If we say God has something better for us in our relationships, we got to start. Because look back on history. Have people always been fair to you? Have people always been kind to you? Have people been the person that you want them to be? The answer is not getting vindictive. It's not having this victim mentality. It's not saying it's all your fault or getting passive aggressive about it. It's about moving better in terms of our relationships. And it starts, I think, so often with vulnerability. It starts when we admit a weakness, when we, we are honest about how we're doing, when we ask for help, when we speak up, when we say this is wrong, and when we communicate value. This isn't a self-help sermon. This is a scripture sermon. This is something that God is putting forward, saying this is the good life. This is what I want for you. I want you to have those relationships that matter. So there you have it. Four possible vulnerability challenges. And I think vulnerability is this on-ramp to connection so if you long to connect with the most important people in your life, if you long to have more meaningful relationships, I would encourage you to take steps in that direction. But as we wrap up here, think back to how the story starts in Genesis. Adam and Eve realize they're naked and they experience shame and fear. There's this breakdown in the relationship. And there's this breakdown in the relationship with God. So in this moment, we have the problem that I think has been plaguing us since then. 
that the grand human condition, the grand human problem is that there is this breakdown, that there is this static in our relationship. And we can work at it, and we can do the things that we know we should do, and we can take steps of being vulnerable, but we're never going to fully solve it on our own, are we? Because think back to all the times when you were right, when things were good, when you were following Jesus, when your life was, was making sense and just kind of clipping along, things even then were not perfect, and they definitely didn't stay that way. And so what is required? What's required is a way to remove that guilt, that shame. Remove that, that stain of brokenness. And we all got it. This is what Jesus does. What Jesus does is not give us a new moral code. It's not give us a new religion. He gives us a way forward. And it's called forgiveness. It's called grace. And you didn't, didn't, didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. The Apostle Paul, someone who understood shame and guilt so profoundly because he, before he converted, before he heard the voice of Jesus, was issuing arrest warrants for Christians. Not just adult men, but women children was rounding up Christians. He was the guy that oversaw, gave approval to a stoning, a public execution brutally of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus named Stephen, whose big crime? Delivering meals to widows. Paul was this guy that would have been racked with guilt after his conversion. Think about the ways in which he could have said, yes, Jesus, I'm in, but my life is worthless now. I can't do anything for you. Well, then we would have about half of the New Testament that we have today. The countless numbers of churches and the ways that those churches planted other churches and people that he helped bring to Jesus would help bring other people to Jesus. That chain, that link would have been broken. But Paul writes this in his letter to the church at Galatia. He says this, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into, into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. The Bible is self-referential. The Bible knows what's going on. Paul knows his Hebrew Bible and his Old Testament. When he says clothe yourself, that is a screaming red light to a Hebrew reader. It says, oh, he's talking about other times where people have been naked and clothed themselves. Well, when is the first time that happened? Adam and Eve. He's saying all that shame, all that guilt has been changed through faith. When we say yes to Jesus, we believe we are brought into this family. We are children of the Lord Most High because of what Jesus has done. And all that shame and all that guilt, Jesus is going to take care of that and is taking care of that and has taken care of that. Our relationships are broken, and it's our fault. Our relationship with God is broken, and it's our fault. But Jesus, but God, provides that solution where we are able to move forward. And it's requiring us to be vulnerable. It's requiring us to pursue something. But most of all, it's requiring us to say yes to Jesus, not just once, but all the time, every day, every moment, where we say, I want to be about this. Here in a moment, we're going to take communion. And communion celebrates God becoming vulnerable. I believe that Jesus was God on earth. I believe that Jesus has all of God's powers, that Jesus has all of God's godness. And when he's there, he is fully aware of how things are going. 
He is fully aware that the next day, that night he'll be betrayed, that he'll be arrested. The next day and into that night, there'll be kind of a sham trial. And then on that Friday, he'll be, he'll be beaten, he'll be tortured, he'll be whipped, he'll be all these things. And then that was just the warm-up, because then they're going to put him on a cross, they're going to nail big railroad spikes through his wrists and his ankles, and they're going to put him up on a cross to publicly die very slowly of either asphyxiation or blood loss. And everyone's going to get the message, don't mess with the Romans, don't mess with the powers that be, or this is how you end up. Jesus could have stopped that, obviously. But Jesus chose this path. Even a path where he says, I'm not sure how this is supposed to go. I don't understand the end point, but me making myself vulnerable changes something, and it gives us a way forward. Band, if you guys would come up, we're going we're gonna to wrap up our time together as we take communion, and we're going to sing one more song. And as they come up here to get ready, I want to...